0: Welcome listeners to episode 188 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr. recording out of Columbus, Ohio. In this episode here for you, I have my Traverse of the Threes number 11, which is featuring the Boogeyman from here in 2023, and I have that paired up with the seventh victim so this isn't the greatest double feature I wasn't sure if it was going to work out the only thing that I can kind of bring up here is that we have hidden secrets and the former you know obviously has a creature while the latter has a potential cult of sorts that might be following satanic stuff I'll get into that later so then for mini reviews I have some summer series prep which is the mummy shroud I got to watch a rewatch actually of the outwaters for 2023 King Kong Escapes is another potential Summer Series pick. I got to watch a documentary of the found footage phenomenon. And then the last one is going to be Manos, The Hands of Fate, while also having some TV episodes of Fear the Walking Dead as well as a Twilight Zone. So I don't think there's anything else I need to get speed with here for this intro. So what I will say in closing is that thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Let me get you over to a very brief break before I get into those mini-reviews. Journey. With a cinephile. And for my first mini review, here's going to be one that I'm going to go a little bit lighter on the recap because it's a potential summer series watch, and that is The Mummy Shroud from 1967. This is directed by John Gilling, who also co wrote this with Anthony Hines. Stars Andre Morel, John Phillips, and David Buck. This is a horror film that's from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis here being, in 1920, an archaeological expedition discovers the tomb of an ancient Egyptian child prince. Returning home from their discovery, the expedition members soon find themselves being killed off by a mummy, which can be revived by reading the words off the prince's burial shroud. So this is one that I actually picked up the DVD a while ago when I was trying to collect all of the Universal and Hammer sequels. So this falls as a sequel to The Mummy, I believe from 59, and then after The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. I'll be honest, I haven't seen that latter one, but I did see their first take of this monster. It didn't seem to reference either of these movies, and it almost feels like a standalone one outside of using the creature, but I'll kind of get into that here in a minute. So... Where I kind of want to get back to, actually, was what I was just saying there. Now, I know that Frankenstein and Dracula films from Hammer, there's some loose continuity at times to keep them going. I do know there's, like, a reboot in the Frankenstein one. I think the Dracula one might even have something like that as well. So I have seen The Mummy from 59, as I said, but I haven't seen that sequel. And I don't really see anything in here to indicate back to either of those two movies. So that helps as to being kind of one where you could just jump into any of these where you're at, at least these first three. I don't know about actually if curse isn't actually direct sequel to the mummy but you know i kind of digress so i did want to bring up something here that i feel like the mummy from 1999 borrowed a major aspect i did remember while watching this that something similar also happens in the 59 version but we actually have everybody from that expedition being killed off and i assume they're probably playing on the idea here that There's a curse of these mummy tombs that if you open them up, the people will die. I do know there's a little bit of truth there that there could be like diseases or something. So when you're breathing in that stagnant air, that could happen. This one does kind of feel like has some early slasher elements as this monster gets its revenge. As it's being directed by the person who is the defender of the tomb. That's where most of the entertainment comes. This one's a little bit boring though. I do want to say that. It takes a little bit too long to get things going. I do kind of find it interesting here as I do love Egyptian history and seeing their artifacts. I do know there's the issue of the British coming into other countries and then taking items back to be in museums in the UK. did think that was kind of funny there. We don't really have anybody from the Middle East playing characters. I do think that's a slight misstep. I do also like how the father here of Stanley Preston, portrayed by John Phillips, he's the wealthy benefactor who is paying for this expedition, so I do love that when Inspector Barini, who is portrayed by Richard Warner, tells everybody they're not allowed to leave while he's doing his investigation, this rich guy of Stanley tries to flee, and I love that how the wealth doesn't matter here, it doesn't afford them anything extra technically, even though they're trying to use it for that way, because they're forced to stay in the country, potentially killing them. I think this is well made enough. I do think that the cinematography doesn't do anything out of the ordinary. It's solid, though. They do some good things, though, with shadows and framing. I did like that. I think the look of the mummy was really good here. I like how they focus on the eyes as they open up when they wake up. Isn't the best version I've seen for that, but it still was creepy. I think the acting here is good. I thought that Morell was good as our older explorer. He has a team of younger people with him, like David Buck, who plays Stanley, son of Paul. We also have Maggie Kimberly playing Claire we also get to have michael ripper here playing long Barrow who works with stanley is kind of a guy who goes and gets things for him so i'd say the acting is good across the board so for me this is a solid movie i like what they do here and as it can be watched by itself as an independent story cast is solid i like the setting in this foreign land where a monster is being used to get its revenge for the things that are being done This is made well enough. The look of the creature and the cinematography are bright spots. The only issue here is with pacing. I don't think it's great, but if you like mummy movies, I think it's worth at least a viewing. So I'm not going to give my rating here, but I would recommend giving this one a viewing. It's not great. And I mean, I would probably say if you're a Hammer fan, go ahead and give this one a watch as well. And for my second mini review is actually going to be my rewatch of a 2023 film, and that is going to be The Outwaters. Technically came out last year, but got its wide release here this year. This is written and directed by Robbie Banfitch, who also stars in this with Angela Basilis and Scott Schmel. This is a horror sci-fi thriller film that is from the United States, currently sitting on a 4.1 on IMDb and a 2.5 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis for Travelers Encounter Menacing Phenomena While Camping the Remote Stretch of the Mojave Desert. So this one, I did a feature review on episode number 177, which was Centennial Club number 12. I had this paired up with the Stone Rider. Not the greatest double feature, but it does kind of have to deal with a little bit of nature and everything like that. But this is one that I had trouble settling in both times that I've watched it. I got past the opening act, and I was there for the ride. This made me feel uncomfortable, which is good. It's an open-ended movie that had me trying to piece things together. I think this is well made from the cinematography to the soundtrack. If I have a gripe it, it just gets a bit too dark where you can't really see anything and I just want a bit more. The characters feel real enough which is all I needed there. I'm not truly sure how I felt with this one and even having revisited I don't know if the pacing works. I think there's some lofty ideas here that it's striving for it just comes up short. I do like allowing the viewer to determine what they think because there's a few different routes that you can go with here like is it aliens, cosmic horror, are we dealing with like a wormhole time loop type thing. I will say, if I, I don't think I mentioned it, but the effects here are really good. I think there's some tweaking here that could make this a bit more effective and actually fully work. So my rating actually has come down. I was sitting at an 8 out of 10. I'm now sitting at a 7.5 out of 10. And I will direct you to that episode if you'd like to hear a little bit more about my thoughts here on the Outwaters. And then I have another one that is potentially Summer Series Prep in King Kong Escapes. This goes by the original title of Kingu Kongu no Gaya Kashu. This is from 1967, directed by Ishiro Honda, written by Takashi Kimura. This stars Rhodes Reason, Mai Hama, and Linda Miller. I also see say that Edgar Wallace also has some writing credits on this as well. I think it's something like the English version or something like that. But this is an action-adventure family sci-fi horror film that is a co-production of Japan and the United States. Currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a... 2.9 on letterbox with our synopsis being an evil mad scientist captures king kong to dig for element x when his mechanical doppelganger mechie kong is unable to do the task kong escapes and soon confronts his mechanical double so this movie that i feel like i knew existed but i didn't also realize what it was to give a bit of background that i discovered while watching this and prepping for my review was that rankin did a cartoon back in the 60s of king kong Toho decided to make this an association with them, and I don't believe they did another movie outside of King Kong vs. Godzilla. I was curious as to what we'd be getting here. So just to kind of give a little bit more here, Rankin Bass is a name that I recognized when I was looking into some things because they did like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, and Frosty the Snowman. Now I haven't seen all of these. I know I've seen parts of them here and there. Rudolph's probably the only one that I watched consistently, and I didn't necessarily know that they did a cartoon where he was fighting like robots monsters and even like spy organizations i might have seen one of these episodes on the cartoon network but i can't confirm that so for this one though it's supposed to be kind of almost like a live action and feature characters from that cartoon show but they abandoned that idea and we get what we have here so we have this coalition of american japanese in the submarine under the umbrella of being a un mission here so then the true villain is meki kong with this villain is doctor who And I should say that this character, not the British version, but this is portrayed by Hideo Amamoto. He almost feels like Dr. No or like a James Bond-type villain like that. But this does parallel the original King Kong, where he fights like a dinosaur to save a character here. Then he also... Things happen at the end, like climbing a tower, that kind of go back to that first iteration of this creature. But then outside of that is... We also... It almost feels like there's some social commentary here. This sub is supposed to be a UN mission, but it feels like this is like the US and the Japan. i being on, you know, good terms here. Doctor Who is a villain who doesn't have a border and he is played by a Japanese actor though. It does have this Madam X, a.k.a. Madam Piranha portrayed by Hama. Now I'm taking it that she's a Japanese government official Now, I do know after World War II, they were under sanction, so they couldn't become a superpower. It does feel like if they get this Element X, which I'm taking is supposed to be, like, uranium or something like that. We're also seeing what happens, like, when Germany went unchecked after World War I, or even, like, Iraq or North Korea in modern times. We have some lofty ideas here disguised in this, you know, family-type movie. I appreciate that. I do like that we get some good effects here, where we have a creature a person in a creature suit so you know king kong and Mechikong are just guys in suits i thought that was good we had some forced perspective with miniature work that was also good credit the cinematography for that i mean other than that the soundtrack fit for what was needed i think the acting here is fine i guess reason didn't take this movie very seriously but i thought he was a professional and he does seem like a soldier in charge so that was good then we also have akira takarada thought he was good as his friend and colleague even though there's like a rank between them i think there's still respect miller was good as this woman soldier i thought she was also cute it's kind of interesting that she was dubbed by julie bennett who was legendary for her voice acting from this era so i thought that linda you know becomes a person who can control king kong hama is good as an actor that i know from this era i thought she was good as this complicated character who shows growth amamoto is also good as this villain and i would say the acting is solid across the board so then in conclusion, this is a fun movie. I can tell that it was directed more towards family and children, like a lot of these kaiju ones are. The stakes just aren't there, so it hurts attention. I do like the miniature work that we get there with the kaijus and being in suits. I have a soft spot for guys like that. The acting around this is solid. I was impressed with the implications commentary there. This is just well made, so it helps it as well. I can only recommend this to kaiju fans, though, especially of this era. Not going to give my rating, but... This one might be hovering as, you know, a late pick for me, but we shall see. And then another brief review I have is for The Found Footage Phenomenon. This is a documentary about horror films that fall into this filming substyle, But this is directed and written between Sarah Appleton and Philip Escott. Stars Patrick Bryce, Derek Lee, and Alexandra Heller-Nichols. This is from the united kingdom It is currently sitting on a 6.5 on imdb and a 3.2 on letterboxd with the synopsis being is an independent documentary charting the origins of the found footage subgenre tracking it through the technique's current form and asking what the future is so this is one that i decided to check out while i was working as it was streaming on shutter i like to watch these while i'm at work you know late in the day it's that point where i kind of treat them like a podcast i can listen to what they're saying and watch when i need to so we actually get to learn like the synopsis says about the history of this like filming style as well as i almost think it's a subgenre now too we learn what titles are starting at like the opening to peeping tom or like major elements of cannibal holocaust we are hearing from talking heads like heller nicholas and shelly mccurdo who have written books on the subject we also hear from filmmakers who have influenced by elements of the past. We learn where they got their inspiration, and this includes the likes of, like, Bryce, Lee, Dean, Ali Oto, Andre Overdahl, Eduardo Sanchez, Michael Goh, James Cullen Bressick Stephen Volk, Stefan Avalos, Lance Vehler, Rob Savage, Koji Shiryashi, and Wami Balarago. and I'm just naming a few and there's some that have you know good insight into other work and how it affected theirs. I should also say that Regaro Diodato from Cannibal Holocaust was also interviewed. So what I want to say is that this is well made, there are clips edited in which help for the visual things that they're being relayed to us as viewers. This also flies by. I was shocked to see that it was over as it feels like it's just kind of scratching the surface. That would be probably the only thing that holds me back here from giving it the top rating that I can for a documentary. This is solid still, and one that I would recommend to fans of the subgenre filming style. So my rating for the found footage phenomena is going to be a 7 out of 10. And my last mini-review before I get into some TV episodes that I watch is going to be Manos, The Hands of Fate. Another one that I was watching as a potential summer series pick. This one is from 1966, directed and written by Harold P. Warren. Stars Tom Nayman, John Reynolds, and Diane Adelson. This is a horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 1.6 on IMDb and a 1.4 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being a family gets lost on the road and stumbles upon a hidden underground devil worshipping cult led by the fearsome master and his servant, Torgo. So this movie that I learned about through podcasts. What was widely said was that this is one of the worst movies ever made. That intrigued me and it went on a list of ones to see. I decided to give it a go as I was prepping, as I said, for the Summer Challenge series. Do I think this will make it as a pick? No, but I still wanted to make, I wanted to watch it just to make sure. So I want to start is on paper this should work better than it does. We have this cult under a master. They worship an entity known as Manos. Their location is hidden as the police or teenagers that are making out in a car do not know about it and the family only finds out when they go down a road and it appears to them. Being that the subtitle is Hands of Fate it almost seems like they were drawn there and this is you know where they find this cult living. Now the master's garb even has fingers and looks like a hand. I think that all works. My problem is that Most of what I've just given there is me making connections and inferring as well. So I have some major problems, but, and that's that nothing happens. There are good elements at work and we, you know, kind of have just things that are happening, but there's no tension whatsoever. And I mean, it should be coming from the fact that there could be human sacrifice here, but they really just kind of focus on this bickering fight between the wives of the master and it kind of goes nowhere. And I think a lot of that's the pacing just off and... I mean, the cinematography is fine. They do well in having this set in the middle of the desert, and it makes things difficult to get away. And it does well, you know, just showing that this is magical in nature, not easy to get to. They're limited on the sets that they show us, and there's not a lot in the way of effects. Things just get repetitive here, and that comes with the musical selection as well. So then, outside of that, the acting's amateur. There's some overacting between Adelson and Harold P. Warren. With the budget they're working with, I'm not shocked. I also read that Naaman was high on LSD when acting in this, and that's hilarious to me because I noticed that he had shifty eyes. thought Reynolds was fine as Torgo. No one's good, but I'm also not going to pick people apart. So in conclusion, this isn't a good movie. I can see why it's rated as it is. I will give credit that they didn't set out to make a bad movie. We have a team that just didn't have the talent or the money. I commend them for making this. It's not badly made. They just needed to tighten things up with the screenplay and polish a bit more for this to be better. I can only recommend this if you like low budget or bad movies and I mean you're probably not going to have this as my pick so if somebody else does in the summer series that is the only way that this will be discussed so just keep that in mind. So then I also got to watch two episodes of Fear the Walking Dead to get caught up there. This first episode was Odessa. It was directed by Ron Underwood. The writers are Robert Kirkman, Tony Moore, and Charlie Adler. Stars Lenny James, Kim Dickens, and Coleman Domingo. And the other one was King County, which was directed by Kenneth Rekwaya. Same people for the other stuff there. This one, we just learned more about Padre and Odessa's synopsis Moe's hunt to prove Padre's true intentions has her over her head as she's drawn into a larger web of secrets. I think this is kind of interesting here because I believe this episode kind of reveals what Padre's intentions are. We also learn about the people behind it. A little bit of a sad situation there, so I can't fault those characters for being kind of turning the way they are because they are trying to fix the world the way it is but i also think it's a little bit misguided that episode i gave probably like a 5.56 around there and the other one was king county this one has morgan returning to king county gets more complicated when padre comes to collect this one we actually kind of see in the previous episode the return of some kind of main characters here it's dwight who is austin amilo and then sherry portrayed by christine evangelist now they actually have been working with padre because they have a child and they're trying to keep that boy alive and then they actually come after morgan here and he's kind of having another breakdown here he's trying to return to where his son was last to try to take care of him we kind of see that he's having some hallucinations it also kind of seemed oh i should also say in the previous episode Dale, daniel salazar who is reuben blades he comes back I just don't love where things are going here still I'm only watching it just because I've started and I don't like to kind of quit on things so I do want to see it all the way through neither one of these are great I did like King County better as I end up giving that one probably like a six that one's probably a hard six where the other one was probably more of a 5.5 just so you are aware I did take a glance at the next episode and does look like it is a bit higher rated so we shall see if I get a chance to watch that one. And then to finish everything out here, I did watch a couple episodes of The Twilight Zone. I finished season four, and the last episode there was The Barb, which was directed by David Butler, written by Rod Serling, and it starred Jack Weston, John McGiver, and Doro Mirandi. This one has Julius Momer, who is a talentless but relentless self-promoting hack who dreams of becoming a successful television writer. uses a book of magic to summon William Shakespeare to write dramatic plays, teleplays actually that Moore is passing off as his own this one's kind of interesting because he is pitching all these ideas the producers don't like them because they don't sell and they're not good ideas and it's really just kind of rehashing the same exact story just interchanging things William Shakespeare gets brought back and then he starts writing plays they're a bit outdated but they're written so well that the studio for television wants them this one kind of gets interesting though is that he gets his book because he was tasked with writing a black magic pilot so i think it's kind of fun where things go there this one's much more comical i didn't really care for this one all as well it just kind of seemed a little bit cheesy so this is another one that i'm probably sitting on like a 5.56 on but i was glad that i finally finished these long episode for season four so then the last one is going to be in praise of pip This was directed by Joseph M. Newman, written by Serling, and then it stars Jack Klugman, Connie Gilchrist, and Bobby Diamond. This is a wearied bookie learning of his grown soldier son Pip dying in South Vietnam. Gets to spend one last delightful hour with a 10-year-old version of him at an amusement park. This one tugged at my heartstrings, I'm not going to lie there. This one, we have Private Pip who is dying, and then we learn that his father of Max Phillips is... He works for a bookie, and he actually has a good heart, but he really doesn't do enough for it to finally help. We see that Pip gets wounded, and then Phillips goes to a local amusement park where he used to hang out with his son, and they spend all this time together, and it gets really sad as you kind of put together what is happening here. So this one I rather enjoyed. I probably gave this one, it's an eight is what I have on IMDb, but they don't let you do half ratings. I would actually probably be at that for sure. So, that's all I have here for mini-reviews, so let me get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. When there are scary things we don't understand, our minds try to fill in the blanks. Sometimes the best thing to do is to face it. So, this light is going to be completely silent like it is right now, and gradually it's going to start flashing until it's totally dark so you can see that there's nothing to be afraid of. Okay? See, that's not so scary, is it? Just you, your sister, and me. You're doing okay. (laughs) It's not real. It's okay. (laughs) <laughs> it's all just in your head. I need to grow up. I'm serious, Sawyer. I need to be alone. You're both having these manifestations. What is this supposed to be? It's the thing that comes for your kids when you're not paying attention. to me okay i'm listening sweetheart let me handle and for my first featured review is going to be the boogeyman this is from here in 2023 this was directed by rob savage it was written between scott beck brian woods and mark Heyman. This stars Sophie Thatcher, Chris Messina, and Vivian Leir, uh, Blair. I think that's how you'd say her name. Well, this also features David Dasmalchen, Marin Ireland, Madison Ho, Maddie Nichols, Leanne Ross, Rio Sarah Machado, Shauna Rappold, Lisa Gay Hamilton, Cristala Carter, Shayla Bragger, Han Soto, Salen Baxter, Ada... In Carlotter, Ellie Bogart, and Maisie Bogart. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from a co-production of the United States and Canada. It is sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being still reeling from the tragic death of their mother, a teenage girl and her younger sister find themselves plagued by a sadistic presence in their house. They struggle to get their grieving father to pay attention before it's too late. So it was a movie that intrigued me when I heard that it was being made. There was another movie with a similar title from 2005 that I could have swore was marketed as being inspired by the same short story by Stephen King. When I'm looking up and doing a bit of quick research this time around, I didn't see anything there, but it's been a long time since reading the source material as well, so I also tried to come in with no expectations. So before I jump into the movie, let me do some featured notes here, and I'll start with our director. Savage is a guy that I first learned about from his movie Host. I watched it with Jamie on Shudder and it spooked us both pretty good. Now he has 18 movies he's directed. I've brought him up with Dashcam from last year. So 10 of his are in horror. I've seen three it is Host, This, and Dashcam. It looks like he's mostly done shorts until Host, and he has a couple of upcoming projects in genre as well. So to our writers, first there's Heyman. He has four films, and I've seen three. Out of genre, I've seen the Skeleton Twins, which is good. He has two in horror with this and Black Swan, which I love that other movie. Then to Beck. He has written 16 works, and I've seen three. Six of his projects are in horror. His first was Nightlight, which I had not seen. He also did A Quiet Place, Haunt, and this, which I have seen those. Looks like he also worked on 50 States of Fright, as well as an upcoming Haunt 2. Then over to the other co-writer here of Woods, as it seems like he works with Beck regularly i've seen three of his 15 films he also has six in horror and they're the same as his co-writer then to the cast i'll start with thatcher she has six movies i've only ever seen this her first in horror was a short called blink this was her feature film debut then in genre then to her co-star of blair she has 10 works that she's been in i've seen two she was in bird box which i also consider to be horror but it's not a letterboxed. but she was also in Goodnight darling which was a short from 2021 then to messina he has 52 pictures and i've seen five i've seen argo birds of prey and rounders which aren't horror but in genre he has two i've seen both with devil and now this and then i'm also going to pull in das malchen i've seen nine of his 61 not in horror i've seen the dark knight prisoners and the first two ant-man movies as well as weird the weird al story in horror he has eight i've seen the belco experiment and this I would also consider Bird Box, which was something else that he was in, to be horror as well. So, for this movie here, we start with seeing a child in their crib. Something comes from the closet to get them. Something I should point out is a picture next to it. We will learn that the father's name is Lester Billings, portrayed by Das Motion and then the mother is Rita, portrayed by Ireland. So the movie then shifts over to the family from the synopsis. There is Sadie who is portrayed by Thatcher, is the older daughter. She seems to be struggling more with the death of her mother than her younger sister of Sawyer portrayed by Blair. Their father is Will portrayed by Messina. He is a therapist, but despite knowing what is best, he has avoided talking about what happened to his wife and is bottling up all of his emotions. He is pushing his children to see a colleague and Dr. Weller portrayed by Hamilton. We also get a bit more in the lives of Sadie and Will the former's best friend is bethany portrayed by who now she has gotten close with natalie portrayed by nichols cassidy portrayed by ross and annie portrayed by machado the new friends are a bit callous with sadie who is still processing her grief now on the other side here we see will meet with a patient they leave and then a shadow appears in the windows of the door lester lets himself in asking for help will agrees to see him even without an appointment Now Lester tells what happened to his children and their tragic deaths. He even reveals that the police believed he is involved. He states that there was a monster that is the cause though. Sadie comes home from school after an incident and she finds Lester in the closet of her mother's former studio having killed himself. It is from here that Sawyer has encounters with this entity that Lester claims took his children. This young girl is already afraid of the dark and monsters being in her room. Sadie also encounters this creature. They do what they can to convince their father before it's too late. Sadie also takes matters into her hands trying to stay alive and protect her sister. So that's only my recap introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is playing a bit of my hand here. I rather enjoyed this for the most part. Ahead of writing my review I did read the Wikipedia page about the short story that it's based on and it seems pretty faithful to the encounter between Will and Lester in his office. From there the rest of it just expanding and doing their own thing. That is how you should handle a Stephen King short story take what makes them good and then flesh it out from there i like the simple enough concept here of taking something that terrifies children and using it as our movie monster now that i've gotten that out of the way when the credits started i saw rob savage was the director and it clicked to me that he was the guy who did host and dash cam as i brought up earlier what is interesting is that both are found footage i can see elements from both being incorporated here but not with the filming style per se Savage is well in handling the supernatural. He grounds it in a way where it makes it scarier and building that atmosphere. That is what we get here. I also like the lore of this creature that is set up, and I want to delve into that next. So the first thing that I thought of while watching this was the movie Smile. The reason I do is that we have a curse here that jumps from people who have experienced trauma. That isn't what we get here to an extent. Now, Lester's first child seems had passed away from SIDS. It could be the monster who did it, or that could be the truth. That is left open for us to kind of figure out. Now, the Harper family is dealing with the death of the mother and wife due to a car accident. It seems like it makes them more susceptible to the entity when you have experienced trauma. And I can work with that. Now, I do need to go over to a negative, though. My problem with this is that where it went, it felt generic. There were creepy things that was built in the beginning. It had me hooked to build towards that climax. It was from there that my interest waned. I think part of this is that the Boogeyman toys with its victims instead of just killing them. That feels more like it's wanting to pad this out. There is a moment where Sadie needs to get home before something happens to her family. That felt convenient as it's hard to do something to make a movie like this stand out. I just feel like it falls short. There is an element as well that harkens back to Host and the implications from that made me cringe. It was set up earlier though so I commend them for at least introducing it early enough. So that should be enough for the story, so let me get over to the acting. I think that Thatcher was good as his teen who was dealing with deeper problems than normal girls her age should. I thought she carried the weight of the role well. Messina is solid as the father who knows what he needs to do but isn't. It's like my wife says, she makes a horrible patient, and he portrays that. Blair also is there to round out the family. She shows good fear as do the other two. I like Das Malshan and Ireland in their roles. Who, Nichols, and the rest of the friend group and the cash kind of round this off for what was needed. So, all that's left is the filmmaking. I want to start with the cinematography because I think this is shot great. They do things with angles and framing that help to raise tension. The use of lighting is also good to hide things in the shadows. That harkens back to fear in clothes, like sitting in a chair, as it looks like something sinister in the dark. That works in its favor. There is CGI for the creature, and I'm sure, I'm not like sure how else you could do it. I thought that looked fine. Other than that, I do think what they do with the sound design does work well. Now, the soundtrack, other than that, just kind of fit for what was needed. So then, a little bit of trivia here before I kind of close out my thoughts. This was originally meant to be released straight to streaming on Hulu, but the strong reception from the test screenings prompted 20th Century Studios to instead go a wide theatrical release. Boogeyman is a film adaptation of a short story written by King that was originally featured in a March 1973 issue of Cavalier Magazine, and then later in Night Shift, a collection of short stories all written by King. Some scenes were so intense that they had to be changed after the test screening. The audience screamed so loud that important dialogue after the scene was lost. The editing was changed to put in pauses so the dialogue could be heard. That's not horrible. The YouTube video on how to contact the dead that Sadie watches references Savage's previous film host with the same location and actress portrayed by Salen Baxter from that film. I did pick up on that. The billing's address is shown as 217 Oak Drive, which is a nod to room 217 from King's The Shining. The Harper family lives at number 19, which is an important number in the King universe. Messina and Thatcher have both starred in TV series with Laura Ambrose. Messina in Six Feet Under and Thatcher in Yellow Jackets from 2021. So in conclusion, I prefer this movie to the one that was made back in the mid-2000s. I like that it takes a bulk of the short story to frame a specific scene and then do its own thing. That works with the lore. I could use more of it, but I also can't fault the movie for giving us what it did. I thought the acting was good, cinematography as well as the sound design were as well. They rely on CGI for the effects and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. This isn't a great movie. It pulled me in, but I'll be honest, I don't know if it sticks to landing. Still worth a viewing in my opinion. I might try to revisit this for my end of the year list as well. So my rating here for The Boogeyman from 2023 is going to be a 7 out of 10. Not going to do the spoiler section, not really anything I think I need to delve into more there, but... What I'm going to go ahead and do though is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Scissors in my hand. I struck at him. I ran away. He was lying in the hole. Blood around him. Your sister, Mary, is a murderess. I don't believe it. You go back to school, then forget Charlie. My second featured review is going to be The Seventh Victim. This is from 1943, directed by Mark Robson. It was written between Charles O'Neill and DeWitt Bodine. The stars Kim Hunter, Tom Conway, and Gene Brooks, while also featuring Isabel Jewell, Evelyn Brent, Erford Gage, Ben Bard, Hugh Beaumont, Chef Milani. Margareta Silva, Joan Barclay, Patty Brill, Wally Brown, Fedor Chaplin Jr., Wheaton Chambers, James Connaty, Edith Conrad, and Kernan Cripps. This is a drama horror mystery film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being a woman in search of her missing sister uncovers a satanic cult in New York's Greenwich Village and finds that they have something to do with her sibling's random disappearance. So this is a movie that I found out about through Letterboxd when I was looking for horror from 1943. It was higher up on the list for popularity, so that intrigued me. I'll be honest, I did read a bit of the synopsis before watching the movie, but when I decided to see this, it was just the next one up. So, before I get into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes of the key people here, and I'll start with the director of Robson. I've seen two of his 33. I didn't realize that he directed Peyton Place. That isn't horror, but my sister is named after the lead character from the book that it's based. Now, in horror, he did two. The first one was this, and he followed up with Isle of the Dead with Boris Karloff, as that is on my list to check out. Then there is also some additional directing done by William Dorfman, so I'll go over his works, and he did 20, and I've seen three. He worked with Hitchcock on Notorious, which I have seen that one right there. He did two in genre, with the first one being I Walked with a Zombie, and I have now seen both of these. Then there are the writers. I'll start with Bodine. He wrote 11 things that were made. I've seen three. All are in horror. I've seen Cat People, its remake, and now this. The only one that I haven't is The Curse of the Cat People, which is the sequel to the original. Then there's O'Neil. He has 11 credits, and I've only ever seen this one. This was the first, and he followed up with Cry of the Werewolf and Alligator People. Now, I'm going to try to see both of these if they're available. Then moving to the cast, first is Hunter. I've seen five of her 65 movies. Out of horror, I've seen Planet of the Apes and two of their sequels that she was in. This was her first in horror, and she did five total. I've not seen Bad Ronald, Dark August, or The Kindred from 1987. I did see Two Evil Eyes, though, which was the last one she did in genre. Then there's her co-star of Conway. I've seen him in six works. He has 57 total. Out of horror, his voice was in 101 Dalmatians and Peter Pan. I've seen his first four in horror with Cat People, I Walked with a Zombie, This, and Bride of the Gorilla. Now, I haven't seen She-Creature or Voodoo Woman as of yet. Then lastly I'll look at Brooks. He was in 33 films. I've seen two. Both are in horror. Her first was Obeah from 1935. I've not heard of that one. She was also in The Crimes of Dr. Crespi and The Leopard Man, which I have not seen these. Actually that one's going to possibly pop up soon. Now I have seen this of course and The Invisible Man Returns. So then let's get into this movie. We start this off at a boarding school of sorts. We have mary gibson who is portrayed by hunter now she's called into the head mistress's office to learn the payments of her tuition are behind her sister jacqueline who is portrayed by brooks has not been paying mary is a good student so an offer is made for her to teach a younger class to continue attending there now she declines that is until she can figure out what happened to her sister she then goes to new york city for answers the first place she goes is the business that her sister ran She meets Esther Reddy, portrayed by Mary Newton. Now, Mary learns that she hasn't seen her sister since Jacqueline sold her the business. This confuses Mary even more. Now, she is given a lead to a Leah's restaurant. It is run by an Italian couple of Giacomo, portrayed by Milani, and Bello Romari, portrayed by Silva. They at first do not know her sister, but the more she describes her, they do remember her coming there. This leads her on a trail to the room that her sister rented. She meets with a Dr. Lewis Judd, portrayed by Conway, who knows where Jacqueline is but is protecting her. There is Gregory Ward, portrayed by Beaumont, who as it turns out is married to Jacqueline and is paying money to Dr. Judd to help her. There's Frances Fallon, portrayed by Jewel, who plays into things as a woman who knows Mary's sister and might have a deeper love for her. Then there's Jason Hogue, portrayed by Gage, who wants to help Mary and will go to the club that is run by Natalie Cortez, portrayed by Brent. Greg also hired a private investigator to track down his wife, and Mr. Brun, portrayed by Barb. So then, Mary sees her sister and knows that she's alive. There are moving parts here, and Jacqueline killed someone in a fit of rage, causing her to go into hiding. Everything must be unraveled to get to the crux of what is happening here. Now they also must come to terms with what they've done. So that's only my recap introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is that to make sense of what I saw, I had to read the Wikipedia Reddit page to make sure I understood what was going on here. This is going to veer into a negative as well this movie in my opinion came out too early and is too ambiguous for what they wanted to do it held back by the censors of the time i'm sure it's dialogue heavy and i miss things reading what they were trying to do who paid a bit more attention than i did helped me piece things together due to that i do want to say that i found this boring unfortunately it didn't help being tired and watching this at night either But then to start with a positive, going with the flow of the story, I like what we have here with Mary trying to piece things together with what happened to her sister. She hopes to find her alive. It is around the halfway mark that she sees her, and then her sister disappears again. There is this cult of people who will have good standing in the area, and they're Satanist. We never see them doing rituals. It feels more to me like they're disinterested in Christianity and society that has formed around it. Now, they're nihilists with very low views on humanity, and to be honest, I'm not far from this. It is painted negative here, though, but then the mystery that Mary follows from here is good. I also read the commentary that Frances is doing what she can to protect Jacqueline, as it seems like they were in a lesbian relationship. It doesn't go anywhere on screen, and it's implied... I did find that interesting that this is 80 plus years old now. It's such a progressive idea. It would make sense if they would have fallen in line with a group like this for the time. So this would be taboo and considered deviant. I don't like that Jacqueline would be cheating on her husband. And I'm guessing that's why she's punished in the end according to the breed code. Now sticking with the positive, let's do to the acting here. I like Hunter as our lead. She is naive and doesn't know the ways of the world since she's been in school this whole time. I get the vibe of film noir here since she has moved into like an underworld that she isn't ready for. This feels like a precursor to movies that would come out in the next decade. Now she fits the role well. Brooks is solid as well in this smaller role. She is more there to drive the story so we don't necessarily need to see her a lot. That fit for me. Conway, Jewel, Brent, Barb, and Beaumont are all good in giving information as well as the Heidler things to help drive the mystery as well. So the rest of the cast is solid for what was needed to round this out. And the last thing I'll do before some trivia is filmmaking. I do think the cinematography here is fine. It doesn't do anything necessarily to stand out. I do like the seedy places that Mary and others go, especially with the backdrop of Greenwich Village being, you know, upper class of sorts. There isn't a lot in the way of effects and the soundtrack also works. What I do need to say is that I found this movie to be boring as it relies too much on telling rather than showing to make that work for me. So then some of the trivia I found on the IMDb page is... Gage who played the poet Jason Hogue enlisted in the US Army in August 1943, around the time this was released, and then was killed in action in the Philippines in 45, which is sad. The character of Mimi, the dying prostitute, comes from the opera Lo Bahim by Giacomo Puccini. References are that are very common actually in Val Luton's films, who is the producer here. The original story for this was outlined by Bodine was to be about an orphaned heroine caught in the web of murder against the backdrop of Signal Hills oil wells. If she didn't find out the killer's identity in time, she would be his seventh victim. Luton wanted the story to go in a different direction and called the second writer to help reshape it. The large painting in Dante restaurant is an adaptation of Henry Holiday's 1883 canvas of Dante Alighieri meeting his muse Beatrice on the streets of Florence. Conway recreates his character of Dr. Judd from Cat People. In memos and early dress of the script, his character was referred to as Dr. Siegfried. Film scholars believe that the character's name was changed to provide continuity between the two and to capitalize on Cat People's success. Judd's character, however, had died in Cat People, calling into question the relation of the two fictional narratives. Film debut of Hunter... The staircase scene in the beginning of this film is the same one used in Orson Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons, which I have seen that one a long time ago. If leading man Conway reminds you of George Sanders, it's because in real life, Sanders was Conway's younger brother. Conway pursued his film career after being encouraged to come to Hollywood by Sanders, who gave Conway his big break when suggested the producers of the Falcon franchise cast his brother as his replacement for the series. I did see that he was in those movies, so that's kind of interesting noble members here include beaumont who plays father ward cleaver in the tv series leave it to bieber hale who is an uncredited subway passenger also appeared as secondary della street in perry mason and the movies of the 80s and 90s pioneering celebrity chef joseph Sh- chef milani who ran the famous hollywood canteen during world war ii and character actor Chaplin jr who's a cult henchman was best known role was the mad monk Jorge D. Burgos and the Name of the Rose from 1986. Directorial debut of Robson, who had previously been a film editor at RKO. Robson would later be nominated for two Oscars as Best Director for both Peyton Place and The Inn of Sixth Happiness and go on to helm the 1967 camp classic and box office hit of Valley of the Dolls, which my mom likes that movie as well. As Mary is leaving Highcliffe Academy, the search for her sister, she overhears a French class conjugating the verb share, share, which is to look for. The $50 that a private detective would charge to find Mary is the equivalent to $845 in 2022. First film for Luton that did not turn a profit at the box office. Included among the 1001 movies you must see before you die. Beaumont's character's last name is Ward. His first name on Leave it to Beaver is Ward. Chaplin also played Cher's character, Loretta's grandfather, a.k.a. Old Man, in the 1987 hit movie Moonstruck. The stunning Renee Connelly black sequin gown worn by Mimi in the film's final scenes might be the same one worn by the mysterious Catwoman in 1942's Cat People and both movies address steals the brief scene in a sinister eloquent way the 68 horror thriller Rosemary's Baby would use some film elements and move the setting to the Upper West Side of New York City and does it much better as well Sarah Selby's film debut discussed at length in the article The Seventh Victim Tired of Being Afraid by Diane Jarrett in the winter 2018 issue, Films of the Golden Age, Mary Newton's film debut, film debut for Chef Milani, Selby's debut with scenes, actions, not only her voice, then the main theme sounds like parts of the Godfather theme, but during the certain dramatic epic moments like Godfather Part Two, when young Vito's boat enters the shores of New York past the Statue of Liberty. Didn't realize all that. And then there's a little bit on there of spoiler so i'm not gonna do those ones but in conclusion i think that the better concept than what it's executed part of that is probably the era that it came out they were limited for the visuals and by censorship so they had to tell us more than just showing us i would say that the acting is good this is well made enough if you take out the pacing being too slow not a great film for what we got but this one is right for a remake in my opinion and actually i mean i guess it's loosely is rosemary's baby i'd only recommend this to fans of the era of cinema in my opinion so my rating for the seventh victim is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section, so let me get you over to one last break before I close out the show.. I would like to welcome you back and then just to close everything out here, if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have right on the show, You can send me that email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If there's anything that you send me you don't want right on the show, just let me know in that email. If you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews of anything that I'm watching that is horror or non-horror alike if you'd like to follow my instagram page that's david osu 87 if you'd like to follow the journey with a cinephile instagram that's journey with a cinephile all one word what i will be posting over there is on both of them the movie posters of anything that i am reviewing and if you follow my personal one every now and then you might see some personal pictures if i ever post any because i tend to forget while i'm out and about and just to make it easier on you i'll have all of those links in the show notes And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. And then for my next episode, it's going to be another Traverse of the Threes as my goal is to go to the Gateway Film Center for the new release to watch the angry black woman and her monster i think that's the title of it if not i have a backup one for movie on shutter that also looks good but then i'm also going to be pairing that up i believe it's the leopard man is going to be the movie from 1943 i have a way where i can stream this movie so i will be checking that out i'll also do more summer series prep for you i know i have a screener that i'll be probably watching this week because it comes available the week after so with how things fall that would actually work out perfectly there and then I will also try to see if I can sneak in another documentary while I'm working. Other than that, I don't think there's anything else I need you to get you up to speed with or to relay to you. So what I will say is thank you so much for listening. Whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and do it and have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending.